Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Welcome to Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Colonel J.P. Clark, a senior editor at War Room, and today we're fortunate to be joined by two distinguished historians to have a discussion about a topic that is often overlooked. Uh, the first is Brian Lynn, professor of history at, and the Ralph R. Thomas professor of liberal arts at Texas A&M University. And in my opinion, Brian is the leading historian of the U.S. Army as an institution. Uh, his five books you know, literally span the, the entirety of the institution's history, uh, the last of which is Elvis's Army, Cold War uh, GIs on the Atomic Battlefield. And so, Brian, thanks for joining us and welcome back to Carlisle. Thanks. It's, it's really great to be back. Thank you very much. And so today we're going to be discussing a, a work in progress, uh, tentatively titled uh, Real Soldiering, the U.S. Army, the Aftermath of, of the uh, War. Uh, also joining us is the War College's own Dr. Conrad Crane, a, a frequent visitor to War Room and uh, a wide-ranging scholar in his own right, uh, an acknowledged expert on topics as diverse as strategic bombing, uh, counterinsurgency, and the Korean War. But in his capacity as the head of the Historical Services Division of the Army Heritage and Education Center, Uh, Dr. Crane's job is to bring historical perspective to bear on issues confronting the Army today. And and I think as our conversation unfolds, we're definitely going to see some of those intersections. And so, Dr. Crane, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Always honored to be here. So, uh, Brian, before we dive into your findings, um, what brought you to this topic? Because, you know, that what comes after battles and campaigns is not, you know, the standard fare of military history, or at least as as most people conceive of it. Uh, Actually, it's... Almost all everything I've done uh, sort of stems from being the Harold K. Johnson professor here in 1999-2000, and I've sort of looked at some of the problems or issues that were raised in the seminars and and from listening to the lectures at the time. And one of those was that that was the end of the post-Gulf War Army, sort of a decade after the Gulf War, and so they were beginning to see that. What do you want to call? recovery, or what General Shinseki called the transition to the post-Gulf or Cold War Army. And that got me really interested in the problem of what happens during that 10 years of transition after a war. And so that's where I sort of started as the premise. And then I said, well, let's go back and look from the end of the War of 1812 on and try and see some commonalities and differences in that 10-year experience. So, Con, your job is helping, you know, senior leaders of the Army gain perspective on their own period. You know, that really kind of brings out an interesting aspect of from, you know, the perspective of SEC Army or the chief of staff. They're viewing this, and I think that you know, history has tended to follow their lead. They want to think of this as a pre-war period so that I can figure out, hey, how do I prepare the Army for the future? But for most of us, you know, uh, uh, as we experience it, you know, as nugs, we're not looking to some unknown future. We're looking to our recent past. And definitely we should note that there are still plenty of soldiers deployed, but um, I think it's fair to say that we're in the aftermath of uh, at least operations, you know, enduring freedom and Iraqi freedom, which are done. And so what are the, the, the 
the either the benefits or the pitfalls of taking any given period of time and saying that this is a pre-war period or this is a post-war period or or put differently how should we think about you know times of transition i mean labels matter um they they really shape the institutional focus and uh you know the army prides itself on on being able to learn but it but it also has shown throughout history it also forgets pretty quick too and and I think it's imp- that the, if you if you think you're in a post-war situation, you have a tendency to look back and learn. If you think you're in a pre-war situation, then you're looking ahead and anticipating, and you don't look back as much. You know, I think it's interesting contrast in this particular post-conflict period. I think it started long before the wars ended, hmm. and I think General Odierno had very much of a post-war focus, whereas General Milley had very much of a pre-war focus. And that kind of explains the institutional directions that they had. Okay, so that's that, that's a fascinating point. We're going to get back to that, um, but but first, real soldiering. So the title of, of the mm-hmm. book. So where where did you get that from? Um, well, it's a story I'd heard, but I've, I actually, as a historian, you know, you need to find the quotation. And it was uh, Michael S. Davison, who uh, General Michael S. Davison, who used to tell it uh, when he was in command of United States Army Europe right after the war in Vietnam when, uh, you know, legend has it, and it was true, there was racial violence, mm-hmm. drugs, insubordination, all sorts of problems. And so Michael Davison, to inspire his, his troops, would tell this story about a British pre-war regular, who, you know, joined the army in the 1930s, who sent to France in 1939, you know, gets through Dunkirk, and then he gets into, sent to the Middle East, and he fights through that. Then he lands in Sicily, and then all the way up to the, the up through Italy. Then he gets sent to France, and so allegedly, finally, when he's crossing into Germany, and he says, turns to his you know friend who's or his mate, and he says, you know, God, I'll be so glad when this bloody war is over and we can get back to real soldiering. <laughs> Well, and so, you know, this is just something that I'll, I'll toss out there for us to, to consider and for our listeners to consider, and we'll, we'll probably get back to it. But, you know, so Khan's earlier comment about forgetting, and then also about potentially the difference between, you know, just in personalities and, and uh, at the top, and, and also where the institution is at, you know, where, what do we consider real soldiering today? <laughs> Um, and you know, where, where does Iraq, where does Afghanistan, where does Russia, where does China fit into all of that is, is some really interesting topics. But, mm. but before we, we get too much into that, so, uh, Brian, so you've, you've done your, or in the process of doing this sweep of, of the U S army's history of the aftermath of wars. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the recurring themes that have kind of jumped out at you as you've done this research? Well, I think that, that one of the things, and to get back to what Khan said, is it, you know, labels do matter. Mm-hmm. And if you do have, as General Milley did, a fixation on the pre-war army, your study is then going to be on those institutions that prepared correctly for the next war. And so he was very interested in the Blitzkrieg and how the Germans got Blitzkrieg and then the whole post-Vietnam uh, airland battle. Um, and so you, you tend to pick examples that are successful and try and emulate them. If you're interested in a post-war army, uh, your focus mm. is a lot broader because then you start dealing at the, at the challenges that are within the force. And these might mm. um, include things like administrative reforms, 
you know, how you're going to change things like the root reforms, which occurred after the Spanish-American War, the 1947 um, legislation that sort of created the Department of Defense. You have to start thinking about preparing for the next war, but it's in, that's a very far off. It's not, it's not a specific. Uh, you have to think about socializing the officer corps. Uh, your work on generations is really crucial in this, that, that there's a pre-war generation and there's a wartime generation, and then there's the people coming in now, uh, the post-war generation, and they have really different expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost inevitably, the NCO Corps has been damaged, if not irreparably, and so you have to create a new generation of NCOs. And sometimes you'll find that the people that were quite capable in the wartime situation are not capable for the post-war force. Uh, and this mm. gets really interesting in the 20th century because the army has gone from having a sort of large group. The majority of soldiers in the 19th century army were privates, career privates, those that didn't desert. Whereas <laughs> now you have a high-tech force and you know you, you don't have any privates anymore. Uh, if they can't develop a technical skill or command skill, they're gotten rid of. Well, that puts you in competition with civilian labor and so that's become a real issue. Mm. And then finally, as the budgets have gone up, there's an issue of selling the army to the people. Uh, public relations and how the army's perceived, this whole, in a larger context of civil military is often seen only in a political context. But you have to sell yourself to your recruitment base and to their parents. And you know that means getting involved in Hollywood and the media and all sorts of other things. So these are common post-war problems. They occurred in 1900, they occurred in 1946, they occurred after the Korean War, they occurred after Vietnam, after the Desert War, and they're going on right now. Indeed. Well, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, Connus, the, the one aspect that, you know, Brian has brought out is, you know, this, uh, the, the issue of people, which also comes out very well in, in Elvis's army too, <laughs> uh, which is another, you know, post-war period and, you know, for throughout most of it. Having been both a historian and then also a participant in the introduction of the all-volunteer force, you know, in the 70s, that seems to be a particularly important part of, you know, as we have to compete um, in the the market, as Brian said. And so, uh, you know, kind of looking back on 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 your experience with the uh, the army, how is that people aspect? You know, because you, you've you know, post-war Vietnam. Mm-hmm post-Desert Storm, now post-OIF, OEF, we'll call it. What, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, Brian and I were talking about this a little bit uh, earlier. The, you know, that At West Point, when I taught in Military History Division in the 90s, when it got to the post-Vietnam lesson, they gave it, gave it to me to give a lecture to all the cadets, and it was entitled, How I Saved the Army of the 70s. And it was my experience <laughs> as a lieutenant in that awful army. But what, what, what Brian has pointed out is, is post-war armies usually are pretty bad as we go through all the turmoil and stuff. But, but what strikes me today, though, is we have, we're just now working a personnel system to break out of the industrial age army. You know, and, and I think we're, we're behind the civilian sector on that. We're finally trying to do real talent management. And I think that's hurt us. And, and, and if we do have this professional force, we, we need to manage it differently. We're not going to – we don't have the, the training base, the industrial base – we don't have the draft to expand for a future war where we're going to have to fight with the army we've got. And I, and I think we're just starting to realize we've got to do a better job 
managing the people that we have. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe potentially we're, we're, you know, even though we might be behind the civilian world and HR practices, maybe we're a little bit further ahead of the bow curve of, of, of in comparison to the past post-war armies. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, that, that remains to be seen, and future historians can, can opine on that. So um, as historians, we deal with continuity and change. And so we've talked a little bit about continuity in this. But so back to you, Brian, what, what is one element where there is, you know, which of these post-war armies stands out to you as being singular, either in a way that is, is instructive for our mm-hmm. listeners, or maybe is just really interesting. And you're like, wow, what a strange situation that was. Well, I mean, I, I'm still sort of fascinated with the fifties army, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, mm-hmm. what the, you know, Marxists might call the contradiction between this high tech vision of atomic warfare with missiles and electronics and real state of the art and the workforce, which was draftees and an NCO Corps that was actually a majority category four. Uh, and, and this, this effort to try and fit these two things. So the labor force and the vision of war and the management together was fascinating to me. But I think almost all of them are really interesting. You know, and I think one of the things that struck me is there's a lot of really good literature out there, but what hasn't occurred is an effort to sort of tie them together to sort of say, you know, there's great stuff on the 19th century army, but it ends in 1898 and it doesn't follow through. I mean, your, your book's one of the few exceptions mm-hmm. to that. It really does. It goes up to the, 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 the difference, the break in the root reforms, and then takes it into World War I. What I find interesting, however, is that after World War I, they go back to the 19th century army. You know, lifetime privates, um, you know, just all that stuff that you, we say, oh, that ended, uh, you know, Look at the army in 1929, and it looks a lot more like the army of 1898 or 1909 than it does the army of 1939. Still a lot of uh, calling cards and white gloves, and, 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 and maybe that's, you know, for us yeah. as we conceptualize this, you know, maybe that's an example of an army that really didn't, other than the desire for the army to be bigger, right? which they, you know, they lose that fight in, you know, right. kind of 1920 that, you know, the army's not going to be as large as, you yeah. know, you know, March and, and Pershing wanted. Um, but they didn't really try to change the the culture, the uh, the aspect, I, I, or maybe I guess probably Marshall had some ideas in mind. That's how you know the the up and out system was you know already probably. Yeah. Uh, we did, we just did a study in our section for the uh, Army staff on history of basic training, and one of the things we found that there, there's as, as we get involved in combat, there, there's more and more focus on lethality. But once you move away from the combat, the focus goes back to drill and ceremony right. and these other things. The and and so you see these cycles. Then that would reinforce right. this look at the white gloves and some of the the traditional right. things. One thing I wanted to bring up though on the fifties strikes me as an interesting period in that looking at all these post war periods, it seems that the fifties is a little bit different. And 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 it, you can see it in some literature. It talks about the rise of the national security state after yeah. after Korea. But it just seems to me that there's a perception in the '50s that the world has become a lot more dangerous that you don't see in some of the other post-war periods. Would would you say that 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 sh- does that shape anything in that period? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's something that that because they were so casual about it, you don't really see uh, the idea that. 
Well, I, I got that, you know, particularly with, with Elvis Presley. And, and one of the reasons I did a book called Elvis's Army is that one of a student here said, oh, that army had Elvis Presley, and it was a terrible army. And I thought, well, you know, Elvis Presley served in a recon unit in Germany. If the war had occurred, he was dead in 24 hours. And he just, he never thought he was a hero, never said anything about it, because he'd grown up with the World War II generation, and, and the draftees just accepted that was the reality. Whereas, you know, uh, I compare that to, you know, the unforgiving minute where mm. a guy does a tour in Afghanistan, loses one person, and, you know, mm. he's, it's, he sort of falls to pieces. Um, and I thought, there's just a very different vision of what war is and what was accepted. The, the casualty projections in the 50s in Europe were, were started at about 20 million. And the seventh army was, was a lot going to be part of it. And, and they just accepted it. And so they didn't write a lot about it. And so in, in some ways, they had a much more realistic view of war mm. than some of the this you know West Pointers coming out serving in Afghanistan. Well, maybe this is something that helps us understand the... Uh, you know, why, why some things are remembered, some things are forgotten is, you know, what are the larger expectations that a war has imprinted on both the mm. army and mm-hmm. on society? And, and, you know, and, you know, you'd referenced, you know, the, yeah. you know my work on, on the, the post-war generations. One of the discussions that we've been having here, uh, you know, in the seminar is somebody who's joining the army today. Once again, let's assume that mm-hmm. we are in a right. post OIF OEF. Mm-hmm. What, what future do they think that they're signing up for? Are they signing up for more Iraqs and Afghanistans? Do they think that they're signing up for great power conflict? Do they not really know? I mean, when I look back and, you know, joined the army in the 90s, yeah. things were, 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 were pretty unclear. I don't think that I had a, you know, a, a definite notion of what was, a, was in store for me. Yeah. But, you know, what is the... What about a conflict? And this is a question for yeah. either of you. Makes the army want to forget, and are we in danger of that now with Iraq and Afghanistan? Based off of your answer, I was involved with a group that looked at the uh, American way of irregular war years ago. It was a conference at Naval Academy that uh, mm-hmm. John Nagel and a couple of professors there had thrown together. And one of the things that came up was that the a lot of times these these low intensity conflicts the problem is there's not the individual and organizational recognition that comes out of those you don't get extra budget money you don't get as many medals you don't get as many honors whereas the the big fight is much more there's much more a lot more equities for individuals and institutions that come out of the big fight so so a lot of the the reason why the there's been that the army tends to focus on the larger conflicts is is just it's more attractive. There's more mm. things that draw you to that kind of conflict. Yeah. I'll also say that that's sort of a, a war college question. <laughs> well, um, no, meaning, yes. Well, okay. Yeah. So meaning that, that, that the army tends to be following its interests tend to be what the senior staff say are its interests. But what I find very interesting is if, and to dig below that, um, to level that, you know, my cadets going in and getting commissioned, that's where I'm interested in. What's it like mm. in the field? And those people, you know, where we're going to fight or so forth is a very distant mm. concern. Mm. They're concerned with having a company that's, at, you know, 60% strength, with equipment that's left over from the last war that doesn't work, with mm. sergeants that they really don't think that they can deal with, with you know junior officers who they're wondering how did these people ever get out 
with a senior leadership who they really don't understand, whether it be the white gloves or it be let's go back to dining inns or or it's let's get back to major combat operations. You know, that's just, that's their world and that's the world that I'd like to talk about. That's where, in a way, that's the post-war soldiering, not necessarily what the Pentagon and the latest doctrine says it is. I mean, they just don't care. That's so, not their world. So how, <laughs> uh, and, and from Elvis's army, you do a good job of, of, of showing how far there was a divide between, right. you know, what was going on at the top and, and what was, uh, you know, within the, the field. Is that one of the recurring themes that you've, you've sensed? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. And that's one of the reasons I got interested. I mean, it started really with the root reforms. And you think, oh, the root reforms, and everyone loves it. Well, yes, if you're in the general staff in Washington, it looks great. And for some of those guys who did well in World War I and later went on to lead the Army, it's great. But out in the field, it's a disaster. You've got a 40% officer absenteeism rate. Your desertion rate is up over 12 or 15%. You know, that, that, you, know you can't keep skilled labor in the coast artillery. In, in terms of... All the chiefs of staff after the root reforms say it's worse than it was before the war. So they don't think it's a great improvement. It's only in retrospect that you get people saying, oh, this was a great improvement. But I want to, I'm, I'm really interested in the hard part of the 10 years after. And I don't necessarily think that's the perspective that the Pentagon has. Mm-hmm. It's, too, it's too late to change the name of this building, however. I think for for our listeners, we're sitting in Root Hall right now. (laughs) I I think he was a great Secretary of War, but what I also think is true with history is that there's a tendency to see these reforms as transforming the force and not going back and looking at what is actually going on in the force. And and it also, (laughs) though, highlights the dilemma we run into with throughout the history of the army with, with, with trying to get leaders that aren't prisoners of their last battle that mm-hmm. somehow can break out of that reality of what they went through, especially when you're a junior leader in these periods right. and that's what really shapes you. How can you change? How can you adjust? And how can you grow later right. on? And to me, I think if there is a, well, I think there's a lot of benefits to what I do, obviously, but I think one of the things that I hope when I write books is it doesn't just resonate at the senior level, but it, at some level, a captain or a major lieutenant colonel can pick something up and say, oh, yeah, this, is, this, this I know. And because I, this is familiar to me, it gives me more options. I can make certain choices because I probably can guess if I pick this option, these are going to be the consequences. And I think that's the use mm-hmm. of history is not that it teaches the future, but it gives you more options right. to be able right. to see this is probably what's going to happen. Or at least it helps us arm ourselves with the questions to ask about, right. you know, uh, where are we, you know. Right. And I think my takeaway from this conversation is we should probably look at both the pre- and the post-war lens and condition ourselves because there is a yeah. pretty important kind of gestalt switch there between, yeah. you know, that very simple question of asking that, that all too few uh, people have done. But, so. they, but they overlap. I mean, we've, what yeah. we talked about is oh, you've, yeah. got, you've got pre-war and post-war going on at the same time, and, and but, right. but they draw you in very different directions. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, if, you, if you're trying to study pre-war, you're going to focus on either spectacular success or spectacular failure, and everything in between gets ignored. 
Mm. And but in that, in a way, corrupts things because that's not necessarily what the priorities were in 1938. You, if you know the United States is going to war, you're going to be focused on the armor force. You're going to be highly critical of the fact that they're not getting a tank, and and you're going to be saying, what's what's with the cavalry? Why do we have so many cavalry units? But 1937, the idea that you were going to go fight a war in Europe would have, you know, put, put, had you committed. Um, and the cavalry units are really important because no one's too sure that Mexico is going to stay stable. Yeah. 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 And then I'll, yeah, the other problem with the pre-war is that, you know, we get focused on the one eventuality right. that did happen as opposed to a lot of things that, you know, while they didn't happen, the, right. pers- the people at the time had to account for. Right. And uh, it becomes kind of overdetermined. Yeah. And, and maybe because the army was successful, those much worse alternatives didn't happen. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we talk a lot about Pearl Harbor. What we don't talk about is a Japanese fleet sailing in and capturing Oahu. And one of the reasons that didn't happen is there's a unit that no one is, remembers anymore called Coast Artillery. And if anyone had tried to do that, you know, they would have been blasted out of the water. So in, in many ways, that worked. Yeah. You know, but they get no credit at all. <laughs> well, and, and so, you know, one other thing that uh, uh, will we'll shill another one of your books, my favorite, you know, Guardians of Empire, is you talk about an army that is dealing with, you know, the Pacific Theater, you know, not enough resources necessarily for, you know, what it's had, is given some missions that probably are not tenable, but the mm-hmm. policymakers have said, you know, you're going to be stuck with the Philippines, even though it's essentially indefensible being on Japan's doorstep. And, you know, soldiers wrestling with these really hard problems, um, you know, this is, uh, it's not a new thing that uh, we're facing. So, Con, yeah. any other, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, if we, because pre-war stuff is very predictive and speculative, mm-hmm. I mean, you're, there seems to be more risk in a, in a, in a pre-war focus than a post-war focus. I, I, no, I think that the... They, they teach different things. The, the, mm-hmm. the post-war teaches you the complexity of putting together an army, which to me is the challenge mm-hmm. that's happening now. <clears throat> if, if you can tell me that it's absolute certainty that we're going to be fighting a particular opponent in 10 years, then I can justify certain things. But for right now, I'd say most of the challenges that are facing the service are post-war challenges. And to have a leadership that's charging towards pre-war creates a state of sort of cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. where, yes, I know Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be training up to this, but in fact, I don't have the equipment. I don't have the the personnel. I don't have, uh, in many cases, you know, the ability to sort of do this realistically, which leads to a sort of cynicism. um, and, And I don't think it's exceptionally helpful. Whereas if you could have at least to balance this thrust towards the next war with, look, we understand here's your problems. This is what you're going to have to be dealing with. You're going to be dealing with with training. How do you train with 40% of your troops? Okay. How do you train for a drop? Like remember uh, in the 1970s, you're training to fight a war, but the big five haven't arrived yet. So <laughs> that was back when we had, you'd get your inspections and you had a little box with three by five cards. And as long as you had everything listed that was wrong on the vehicle, you got credit for it in the inspection. Well, I, you know, I'm thinking you couldn't a, get parts to fix them. You just had the, the little right. three, five, the box with the three right. by five cards. You know, I'm thinking of a doctor and that, you know, that has you having a main battle tank when you didn't have a main battle tank and you weren't going to have one for 10 years. And so there's that element of unreality 
that that I think studying the post-war allows officers to recognize that and to say, this is what it's like. I, you know, I share a bond with the people in 1815 and a bond with the people in 1866. And this is my, these are my problems. And now they make sense. Yeah. Well, and it certainly helps um, kind of battle the, you know, the, the most complex, you know, world ever, the most dangerous world ever. Um, right. You know, probably we should uh, gain some perspective before we make too many of these, uh, yeah. these sweeping generalizations. But uh um, so Brian, give you the final word. Uh, what would you want our listeners, the students at the war college, uh, army senior leaders to take away from real soldiering? Well, besides reading your book, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I think I've sort of said that, that I think what history is useful for is, is first of all, giving you an understanding that you're not the first person to face these problems. And second of all, to give alternatives, to understand that this is the world I live in. And if I make these choices, uh, these are probably the consequences. Um, you know, even something similar like uh, if we bring in a whole bunch of people and direct commission them, you know, what's, what are the likely results of that going to be? Um, well, there's a precedent for that. Not, uh, Korean War and uh, the doctors. And you, mm. you, you know, MASH, MASH is based on a book by a MASH doctor. And a lot of MASH veterans have told me that's not, you know, it's, it's, it's novel, but it's not that far from our attitudes that we had. So these mm. things aren't being thought about. And I think that's what history can do. And I think, you know, just both the specific and the general, that's what I'm hoping real soldiering will, uh, will tell readers. Well, uh, we're all definitely looking forward to its, uh, its, its publication soon, so we'll be on the lookout for it. Uh, gentlemen, both, thanks for coming in and, and joining us in the war room. Uh, I think we could this discussion could go on for quite a while more, but I see the sands of time literally <laughs> literally falling in front of my face, and so, uh, so we better wrap it up here. But uh, thanks for a very enlightening conversation. Thanks very and much. Thanks, thanks to our AP. listeners for joining thanks. us. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.